right, so this is Eric Baker from the Dade City Wire. I'm here with Mr. Bill Dayton, longtime resident of Dade City. So, Mr. Bill Dayton, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, I was born here, and uh, I went to the Dade City Grammar School, and then, uh, well, they didn't call it middle school then, uh, and then I went to St. Leo Prep uh, starting in the eighth grade, and I graduated from St. Leo in the prep school, and then went to Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, and I also went to law school at Mercer. So you have a, you have a, you're a lawyer. You have a, you're a, a practicing lawyer then. Well, I'm retired now. I closed my office a few years ago, and uh, I've not been in active practice for a while. So what kind of law did you use to practice? Uh, general practice. You know, I'm, I did, especially toward the end, I was primarily doing uh, criminal defense law and real estate and probate. Uh, for years, I did family law as well, and I got out of that uh, when the Supreme Court adopted their standard interrogatories, which uh, work for people with a great deal of money, but it made it, uh, you know, when they're required, uh, and you're dealing with a client who doesn't have a stock portfolio, and you're questioning him about a stock portfolio. You know, got half a dozen questions about their stock portfolios, and some of my clients would not have any idea what that was. And so I'd have to explain it, and that would mean that I had to spend a whole lot of unnecessary time uh, with low-income family law clients. There was one kind of gratifying occasion in my family law practice. A young man from Lacucci hired me to uh, get him visitation with his children. He and his ex-wife were not on good terms, which certainly isn't uncommon in family law. And uh, I was able to get a court order that he could see his kids again. And his father told me, you know, Bill, this is the first time that any member of my family ever hired a member of yours. Mm. My grandfather never forgave your uncle for introducing the bill that ended free range. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, Florida, Florida was a free range state up until the late 1940s. And when my late uncle George Dayton was in the Florida legislature in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, one of his accomplishments was introducing the bill that ended free range. Hmm. Up until then, uh, if you didn't want someone's cattle or hogs in your yard, you needed to fence them out. And Dade City had a fence and cattle gaps all around the city limits. Uh, I grew up on Tank Hill, and our yard was the the back backyard boundary, and the west boundary of the yard were the city limits. Mm. And I can remember the cattle gaps. Uh, you know, after a heavy rain, dirt would wash down and fill up the cattle gap and if the city didn't get somebody out there to dig the sand out all of a sudden you had somebody's cattle wandering into the yard and grazing 
and uh, I don't think there are any of the cattle gaps left. Mm. But uh, there was one next door that had just been filled in, but you could see the iron rails that made yeah. the cattle gap, and but uh, that somebody who didn't know what it was just dug it up and got rid of it. Uh, that was kind of sad that just it was the last one, but you know the yard was fenced and there was a cattle gap where the driveway came in. There was another one of those on Church Street, but I believe it's also gone. Mm. Okay, and so now you said, you told me you were, you're born and raised right here in Dade City. Yes. You're from Dade City. Yes. You said your grandfather moved here when he was? 15. Uh, he was born in Texas. My great-grandfather was a medical doctor, University of Iowa, class of 1856, and he got tired of his, you know, his whole career in medicine had been in the Wild West, mm. and he got tired of having mysterious men and dusters wake him up in the middle of the night wanting him to patch bullet wounds and ask no questions. And in return for the medical assistance, they wouldn't burn down his house. Uh, and he got kind of tired of that and decided to move to Florida uh, and stop practicing medicine. People found out he was a doctor and he wound up being back in the practice of medicine anyway. But uh, he had been a successful rancher in Texas and sold his Texas property. Uh, there was a story told in the family that I always assumed to be a joke probably manufactured either by my grandfather or by my father or my uncle or all three of them together. The story being that great-grandfather Dayton uh, had to sell the ranch in Texas because uh, water or oil kept filming over the water holes and the cattle wouldn't drink it. And uh, he so moved uh, to Florida. Uh, I'd always assumed that story was false. Mm -hmm. And then some years ago, a friend of mine who worked at the time worked in the library at St. Leo called and said, Bill, there's some interesting magazines. Somebody gave us a bunch of antique magazines from uh, the first few years of the 20th century, and uh, I thought you'd like to take a look at them, and I came out and looked, and there was an ad for a company selling stock in an oil, you know, uh, oil venture, and part of the ballyhoo for their stock was, we have leases on 1,700 acres adjoining the famous Dayton's Prairie oil field. <laughs> so, great-grandfather Dayton apparently did sell some prairie ranch land because he didn't realize that the oil was more valuable than the, the cattle. Uh, he also, when he arrived in Tampa, uh, was offered 10 acres in Tampa Heights for 10 horses. He had brought a string of Texas cow ponies with him. And uh, when they were unloading in Tampa, uh, somebody liked the the horses and 
offered to trade him 10 acres in Tampa Heights hmm. for the horses, and he turned it down. Because having a scientific education, he knew that uh, Tampa had no future as a residential community. community. There was just too much low ground, and as any scientist of that day knew, low ground caused miasmal vapors that caused malaria. Okay. The connection with the mosquito wasn't discovered until, I think, 1903. Mm. Uh, although, oddly enough, in the 1850s, there had been a Dr. Wall in Tampa who published a paper in which he speculated that malaria might be carried by mosquitoes. And however, he later decided, no, this just, that, that idea is a false lead, and he gave up on it. Uh, it wasn't until they were digging the Panama Canal that, I can't remember now the name of the doctor who was associated with the Panama Canal, mm -hmm. who discovered that uh, malaria was carried by mosquitoes. Mm. And that may help explain the old belief that uh, malaria could be avoided by heavy drinking. Mm. Uh, and so, oh, places like Cape Coast Castle in what's now Nigeria, uh, the colonialists who were, it was a slave trade base, Cape Coast Castle, and I'm told that the cemetery there is just full of young men who died very shortly after arrival in Africa from malaria. Sure. And that uh, to try to prevent the malaria, they would drink huge quantities of gin. And so here, the staff of Cape Coast Castle was probably roaring drunk 24 hours a day and thinking that that would help. And apparently it, it did. You know, I've noticed sometimes when I have friends over here for cocktails and someone is not drinking, the mosquitoes will attack the non-drinker first, invariably. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean they won't attack the drinkers shortly afterward. Sure. But uh, that it does apparently uh, dissuade mosquitoes oh. for a, a limited amount of time. Well, I've been rambling. Are there any questions, specific questions you'd want to ask me? Sure. So, more specifically about Dade City. So, you're from the area. So, I'm just curious what, what, what you would have to say just about Dade City in general. Well, uh, Dade City has so far managed to uh, avoid the uh, unrestrained growth that has done so much damage to other parts of Pasco County. Uh, the reason US-19 is such a dangerous drive is because there were a whole bunch of subdivisions that were built out there that just would empty into 19. And uh, the reason Zephyr Hills is surrounded by small trailer parks is that the original developers of Zephyr Hills, uh, the Zephyr Hills Colony Company in 1910, developed it as a retirement community for veterans of the Union Army, the Grand Army of the Republic. And what's now the American Legion Hall in Zephyr Hills was originally the GAR Hall. 
and the uh, colony company would sell a, a five-acre tract and add a lot in town with it so that the Union veteran could have his five-acre retirement farm and a lot in the city of Zephyr Hills. And of course as the original settlers died off, uh, their heirs would sell the property and uh, break up these small retirement farms. And if you look at a land ownership map, Zephyr Hills is surrounded by small uh, mobile home parks. They're all on five acres or some multiple of five. Okay. And yeah, that's how that evolved. And Dade City has always been insulated by large land holdings, uh, cattle ranches and orange groves. Although that's disappearing now too. Uh, what do you foresee as the future of Dade City? Well, I frankly think some of the these new subdivisions are the slums of tomorrow, mm. and that it's not going to bode well. Uh, the state of Florida has beaten the drum for planned growth for many, many years now and spends inordinate amount of money on plans, but the plans are obsolete before the ink is dry. You know, nobody tries to hold to the plan. We had one called Florida 2000 and the state of Florida spent millions and millions of dollars coming up with the Florida 2000 plan, which called for certain tracts of land to be restricted to agriculture. And, uh, well, you know, you have uh, a freeze and the orange groves are not producing and somebody wants to just get rid of the land and at the highest price. And so they allow a subdivision instead of requiring the property to stay in agriculture. And that has led to uh, uncontrolled growth and houses that are just uh, far too close together uh, and that's the result of nobody paying, the whole state paying huge amounts of money for these elaborate plans and then nobody sticking to the plan. We still have a number of, of uh, large land holdings surrounding Dade City. Uh, you know, the Larkin family are still very active in agriculture of all sorts. Cattle, citrus, soybeans. Uh, At one time, I had my office in the Larkin building when the late E.B. Larkin uh, was still alive, and uh, Mr. E.B. was uh, a lawyer and also a cattleman and also uh, a soybean farmer and his older brother, Bill Larkin, brought the first Santa Gertrudis bull to Florida. Uh, 
that was a story and they were all the Larkins were good friends of my family and uh, Mr. Bill Larkin went to uh, Mexico and uh, on the way there stopped at the King Ranch in Texas and he'd heard that the King brothers had developed uh, a breed of cattle that w did much better in tropical climate. You know, some breeds of beef cattle uh, don't respond well to too much hot weather. And the Brahma bull and this, the Santa Gertrudis, which is a mixture of uh, Brahma and uh, some other breeds of cattle, uh, Santa Gertrudis is very heat tolerant. And uh, Bill Larkin looked at some of the Santa Gertrudis cattle and uh, went and spoke with some of the King brothers about seeing if he could buy one. And uh, they said, nope, nope, we're not letting them off the property. We developed the breed and we're keeping it. And as he was leaving, he overheard some of the King's cowboys talking about they had run into a critical shortage of some particular grain. I don't remember now what it was. But it happened that Mr. Bill Larkin had uh, a large quantity of it stockpiled. And so he went back in and uh, spoke to the King brothers again and said, well, I understand you need so much of this grain. Well, yes, do you have? Yes, I've got plenty. and. I'm not going to sell it, but I'll trade it for a Santa Gertrudis bull. <laughs> and so they worked out the deal, and uh, Bill Larkin and his wife, Emily, and their friend, the late Dorothy Locke, uh, who was a pioneer, one of, I think the first person in Pasco County to teach Spanish in the public school system. And so she acted as interpreter for the Larkins. And uh, they, on the way back, they stopped and picked up the Santa Gertrudis bull. And the old Larkin house on Church Street, uh, which is now inhabited by their uh, nephew, who was raised by Bill and Emily, the Ray Battle. And uh, I can remember when the pin in the backyard was still there, <laughs> where they had put the first Santa Gertrudis yeah. cow in Florida, <laughs> or bull, first Santa Gertrudis bull, yeah. in, in a pen in their backyard uh, on Church Street. Excuse me, that's, you know, the economics of the citrus industry over the years is kind of interesting. Uh, in the 1890s, when the railroads first came through, all of a sudden, it was highly profitable to be raising oranges. And uh, because you could, instead of having to pack them in barrels, haul them by ox cart into Tampa and then ship them by schooner to New Orleans and then get on rail lines. Uh, you, now you could load them right here and they'd be in Boston or New York in a matter of days. And, and in the, in the late 1880s and early 1890s, 10 cents a day was still considered a decent living wage. Uh, later on, of course, 
and things changed. Um, there's a story that I've always liked told about the Kummer sawmill in Lacoochee. Uh, the Kummer Company came to Pasco County in the early 1920s and developed the Kummer Mill there and they bought the whole east end of Pasco County which was the Green Swamp and uh, proceeded to uh, remove the first growth cypress and uh, when the summer mill first opened, there was a young man who got a job, and he was one of their big items were cypress crate parts for orange crates. And uh, he was pushing a dolly full of crate parts around in the mill and uh, bumped into uh, older, well-dressed, prosperous-looking gentleman and knocked him down. And the young man said, Get out of the way, you old fool. Mr. Cummer ain't paying me ten cents an hour to watch out for the likes of you. And uh, he went on, and some people came rushing up, picked the old man up, and said, Mr. Cummer, uh, shall we find out who that is and fire him? Hell no, that's the kind of man I want to have working for me. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good story. Yes. Yeah. And I've heard it from a number of sources, all of whom said they knew the people involved. Yeah. Um, there's a house that still stands in Lacucci that was known as the Bungalow, and the Cummer family kept that as their residence in Lacucci. Mm. And it had... Uh, a gardener and a, a maid and they would be ready to have breakfast on the table on very short notice and sometimes uh, oh, I talked many years ago to the late Clifford Cooey who was the station master in Trilby and one time uh, one of the comers got off the station platform there and he said, yeah, call the bungalow and tell them not to fix breakfast for me. I'm going to go out and uh, have breakfast with Johnny Mills. He's an old friend who lived just outside of Trilby on the other side of the Hernando line. And uh, so he called the bungalow and said, yeah, Mr. Cummer says not to fix breakfast. He's, he's uh, gonna have breakfast with Johnny Mills and his wife and but you know they without that instruction they would have had breakfast on the table waiting for him when he got there yeah yeah when the Cummer Mill and that was at one time the largest single employer in the county uh, and before Cummer, there had been Sunnybrook Tobacco Company in Dade City, which was, before Cummer came in, the largest employer in the county. And Sunnybrook uh, had three, a, a disease called black shanks spread through that uh, wiped out three successive tobacco crops in succession and you know losing three crops in a row was just more than Sunnybrook could handle so they closed their doors and fortunately a Cummer company moved into the county just about the same time the early 1920s and uh, And, you know, Cummer didn't close until the late 1950s. And I'm told that Mr. Wellington Cummer made the comment, well, we just logged ourselves out of the Cypress business. <laughs> uh, 
they're still out in the green swamp, which now belongs to the to Swift Mud, the Southwest Florida Water Management District. But out in the woods and swamps there, you can still see some of the railroad uh, embankments. The rails have, and ties have been taken up long ago, but the embankments are still there. The Comer Company had their own engines and would lay rail lines into different areas and then send crews of men out to cut the trees with cross-cut saws and then uh, pull them up using a thing called a steam skitter, pull them up to the rail line and load them on flat cars and the Comer trains. We've got one of them out at the Pioneer Museum uh, that the Comer Company gave the museum. Mm. And it's But, you know, they would bring them in. They were cutting cypress, some of which were so big that they couldn't get them into the mill and had to have a specially trained crew of men to split the logs with dynamite. Oh, wow. And, you know, of course, you have to be real knowledgeable <laughs> to avoid uh, to just split the log and not splinter it. Uh, yeah. But that the size of the virgin cypress, some of those things were just really immense. Uh, you can look at some of the old photographs and realize, my gosh, it would have taken 10 men at least, you know, standing fingertip to fingertip to go around the base of the thing. Sure. Uh, and at one of the uh, projects that my great uncle, whose name was George Dayton also, but they had different middle names, uh, my great uncle, my grandfather's older brother, uh, George William Dayton uh, was in the legislature in the early 1900s, I think about 1915, and he introduced a bill to set aside 200 acres of virgin pine forest so that future generations would be able to see what the virgin forest looked like. Uh, Nobody thought there was any need for anything like that. The bill died in committee. Uh, and there are now no virgin pine tree, pine forest left. It's all been cut. Uh, there are a few, uh, I remember as a child seeing one virgin pine tree out in Gulf Hammock. I went out there, oh, I was out. I guess 10 or 11 years old and uh, my brother and I and uh, were hunting with my father and an old friend of his and he had some property in Gulf Hammock and had a virgin pine tree on it which was immense. You can get an idea of how big some of the virgin trees locally were by looking at the pews, uh, the older pews at St. Mary's Episcopal here in Dade City and the older pews at St. Anthony's Church in San Antonio. These older pews have single board backs one pine board three feet wide and these are quarter sawn not not uh, 
know, that that's a really big tree to produce a mm -hmm. a three foot quarter sawn board. Sure. So, sir, what would you say? One final question. I don't want to take up your time. What would you say is a reason or some or a few or some of the top reasons that you love? What do you love the most about Dade City? Well, again, I was born and raised here, so it's you know always been home. just something you a feeling you kind of fall into uh, my friend Morgan Tyler uh, who was raised on military bases uh, you know his father was an Air Force general and his mother was local uh, she was a Hawes, and her parents lived across the street from my grandparents. And she told me at one time that I was a guest at Morgan's first birthday party. I would have been two, maybe two and a half at the time. And I have just a very, very dim recollection of going to a party at the house across the street from my grandparents and seeing more people my age than I had ever seen in one place before and feeling kind of intimidated by it and then recognizing some of the black helpers who were assisting the houses at the party and recognized some of them so oh okay everything's okay I know where I am and you know who's here and uh, the late Nudie Bell Richardson is the person I'm specifically remembering and she worked for the late Dorothy Locke and uh, so you know Dorothy Locke was a real close friend of my parents and my uncle and aunt and uh, the family were always close to my family. This house was built by Dorothy Locke's aunt, uh, Miss Hattie's Bell Spencer, who was the postmistress of Dade City for a long time. She was a McKinley appointee and uh, built this house in 1904. Uh, she had been, by that time, she had been postmistress for several years. She was in office as postmistress when Theodore Roosevelt took the post office out of the patronage system and made it a merit, made postmaster a merit retention job. And uh, Miss Hetty had always done a very competent job as postmistress so she stayed on into the 1930s and she was the maid of honor at my grandparents wedding in 1902 so you know you see these family links over generations yes sir and now that Morgan has retired uh he was a professional bridge player and then decided to uh, get a graduate degree. He has a PhD from Harvard and is a leading authority on first century Palestine. But he moved back to Dade City where his mother was born and lives just down the street and drops by here for a drink every now and then. And, uh, and I've known Morgan since we were very little boys. Uh, 
that you know there's not any one thing that I'd point to as saying something I like. There are a lot of things I like about Dade City, and one of them is, uh, you know, having been here for a long time, and so I know a lot of people, and uh, there's been a Dayton practicing, well, until I retired, there had been a Dayton practicing law in Dade City since 1895. My great uncle uh, was a graduate of University of Michigan, uh, and uh, my grandfather read law in his older brother's office. My grandfather never went to law school, but in those days you could read law uh, in an established lawyer's office, and then would be examined by a judge in open court and questioned in law and chancery. <laughs> and we still had separate chancery courts in those days. Uh, that was a thing carried over from English common law that uh, Originally, the Court of Chancery was an ecclesiastical court, and the, uh, the Lord Chancellor was the king's confessor. And you know, when Henry VIII suppressed the monasteries and uh, started the Church of England, the position of Lord Chancellor. Uh, was no longer automatically held by an ecclesiastic. Uh, but the since the original chancellor had also served as the king's confessor, uh, it was the court of conscience. Uh, you could, things that were not permissible in strict law, you could appeal to the king's conscience mm. through the chancellor. Mm. And for that reason, chancery court jurisdiction was primarily what's now called family law. And uh, real estate was more absolute. Uh, Criminal law was pretty absolute, uh, for one thing, until the 19th century, uh, all felonies were punished by death. Mm. And uh, so, in England, a felony, a theft of something worth I think more than three shillings, sixpence, that meant the death penalty. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the, I read the story of an English judge, Lord Mansfield, who at a trial someone had stolen a piece of clothing from a tailor's shop and Lord Mansfield said, well, the value of this thing, I assume, is less than three shillings. And the tailor jumped, my lord, why, the fashion alone is more than worth more than that. I mean, it was a fashionably cut coat. And uh, pray God, sir, we should not hang a man for fashion's sake. That was Lord Mansfield's answer. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, an interesting figure in English law. He's the one who uh, uh, one of my law teachers used to say created commercial law ex proprio vigore. Oh. He just he saw there was an area that needed clarification 
And so he talked with a lot of the leading merchants in London to find out how they handle things like, you know, where does a sale take, take place? And uh, he adopted the practices of the leading merchants and brought them into law. Uh, it's interesting that the Confederate Secretary of State, Judah Benjamin, uh, who escaped somewhere through this area. Uh, he's the only Confederate cabinet member who was not captured. He had noticed that he was slowing President Davis and the other cabinet members down when first they left Richmond intending to reestablish the Confederate government in what was called the Department of Trans-Mississippi. That's on the other side of the Mississippi. They were going to reestablish the Confederate government in Texas and keep the war going. And as they were traveling from Richmond to uh, initially with Texas as the goal, they realized just when now this this whole thing is over. Uh, we're not going to be successful. We just need to get out of the country. And uh, Benjamin uh, asked to uh, go separately. He said, you know, I've noticed I seem to be slowing you down and Jefferson Davis wouldn't hear of it. Uh, no, we're not going to leave anybody behind. And uh, Benjamin said, no, I please, I think I can handle it better uh, if I disguise myself. And he, a uh, Confederate cavalry officer from Louisiana, Major Leroy, uh, offered to stay with Benjamin. And so they disguised themselves as a French land buyer and his <laughs> interpreter. And Benjamin would speak nothing but French, and Colonel Leroy would interpret for him. And so they went off in that disguise. Uh, he chose, he noticed that his trunks had his initials, JPB, in brass tacks on them. And so he adopted the name Jean-Pierre Bonfall. And so Monsieur Jean-Pierre Bonfall and his interpreter were traveling in a Surrey. And the Union, when the Union cavalry unit that captured Davis and the cabinet got there, uh, well, they noticed that Benjamin was missing but nobody connected the missing Mr. Benjamin with Monsieur Bonfall, the French land buyer, until it was too late and they got into Florida and they uh, eventually had to abandon the, the disguise and uh, came and eventually abandoned the Surrey. Uh, and we're traveling on foot and in probably in Hernando County uh, they decided well we you know we're hungry uh, let's just risk the next next farmhouse we came to and okay we'll do that we'll just if they turn out to be unionists well we made a bad gamble and uh, as they were approaching the farmhouse a parrot uh, apparently the inhabitants of the house just let the parrot you know fly around the parrot knew where the bird seed was and wasn't going to fly away uh, and the parrot was there shouting ar, ar, hurrah for Jeff hurrah for Jeff you know, Jeff Davis, and they, oh, well, this is a pro-Confederate farmhouse here. <laughs> and 
so they went up and hid out there and then uh, Benjamin traveled uh, Major Leroy uh, parted ways with him they decided they would be safer traveling alone and together uh, and Benjamin passed somewhere through here and wound up at the Gamble Plantation in the Sarasota area, mm. which is now a, a state park. It was established as a museum by the Daughters of the Confederacy, and they still own the, the building. Uh, It's, and Benjamin was from there. He hid out there for a number of weeks and then uh, got passage with a Cuban Confederate, uh, Captain Tresla, I believe his name was, and was able to leave Florida on Captain Tresla's boat and make it to Havana. And there he changed and uh, took a ship from Havana to Nassau. Uh, arrived in Nassau, uh, the ship he was on hit a squall and he arrived in Nassau in a leaky rowboat with two Bahamian sailors uh, rowing. And they came ashore just outside of Nassau, and Benjamin got out, took off his money belt, which had gold coins in it, divided the gold coins between the two Bahamian sailors, and walked into Nassau uh, with absolutely nothing. But he had friends in Nassau, and they arranged for a loan, and. Uh, got him passage to England, and he lived the rest of his life in England, became a lawyer, published a, a book, Benjamin on Sales, that still consulted. And uh, by the time he died, he was a Queen's Counsel. Wow. Well, sir, that's awesome. I don't want to take yeah. up any more of your time. It's been about an hour. Again, here. as you see, I get easily distracted by something. <laughs> I started off talking about Big City and wound up with Judah Benjamin. Oh, that's all right. It, it all it all plays in together. That's okay. The The purpose of the conversation was just to sit down with you, have you talk about Dade City a little bit, and that's what we've done. So I really appreciate yeah. your time.